Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to That Age 12. This year, week, we are doing a really Christmas special. And a real... Christmas special of the year is, of course, about Santa Claus or Saint Nicholas, the OG Santa Claus, if you will. Hence, my Christmas hat here. And my guest this week is the Adam English, who has written the saint who would be Santa Claus, and of course, that's is Saint Nicholas. So, first, I'm trying to get to know the author, or the historian that I have on the podcast a little bit. So, how did you come to that is Saint Nicholas? Or, of all people. Well, thank you so much, first of all, for having me on your podcast and your program. And I, I, I enjoy um, talking about this subject and especially at this time of year. Um, my own interest in St. Nicholas um, uh, came well from two places, really. I, I have always, I grew up at loving the traditions of Santa Claus and of Christmas and gift giving and, and all of that. But uh, academically, my interest in St. Nicholas came from uh, my discovery of uh, some archives in Italy. Um, I typically lead a study abroad trip for students to Italy and discovered at one point that the remains of St. Nicholas, the bones of St. Nicholas mm-hmm. are in Bari, Italy, on the uh, on the eastern coast of, of Italy, and uh, that there's also an archive library there in addition to a basilica with the bones and and the the tomb of saint nicholas so i had a chance to just go and spend some time there in the archive library and look at some of the sources and you know my fascination with the original uh, historical person of nicholas just grew from there so how much do we actually know about saint nicholas because you know there is saints always have this legendary almost superhero like stories of Often that they have the super, some of them have the sealing powers, some of them, you know, do this and that. That's almost unbelievable. This, hence, we call it this term, the saint story. So, how much is actually, not that it maybe necessarily matters, but how much do you actually know about a person, Saint Nicholas, than com- compared to the saint stories? Yeah, it's messy. There's not an easy answer to that question because St. Nicholas himself did not leave any writings. Um, and there are there are really no contemporaries of Nicholas that write about him either or write to him or something like that. So everything we have about St. Nicholas comes after the fact. And so, you know, I certainly understand historians who will hold the life of St. Nicholas in some doubt. Um, it would be much easier if we had, um, you, know, you know, something in his own handwriting or someone of that age who, who wrote about him. Uh, but the first stories that we have of Nicholas come really a couple of hundred years after his life. So, um, you know, now, does that mean that we we can, we don't trust them or that we don't believe them or no, you know, we can still find historical nuggets there that uh, people who are writing about St. Nicholas were putting down in writing things that had been oral tradition and oral legend for a long time and that um, many of them had some kind of historical basis. So certainly we have reason to believe that this real person really existed and did, you know, a number of things. Uh, there's no, no real reason to doubt that. Um, but, you know, in terms of the, the hard, you know, practical evidence that we would love to have especially for like a contemporary historical figure, you know, we don't have that. But you, of course, you remember that we're talking about someone who lived in the, uh, you know, late 200s and early 300s. And so 
you know, some of that we have to uh, piece together and and have some some trust. But the earliest kind of real historical record that we have of Nicholas uh, could be dated to about the year 500 or so. So before we begin, what do you think of most people's connection to St. Nicholas? Because I reckon everyone in the Christian world at least knows who he is, but they don't really know much about him. Do you think? So what do you think is everyone knows? Oh, the instant connection, St. Nicholas, that is Santa Claus or the real Santa Claus. So, but do you think that's most what people think of him when they first hear the, the name? But what do you think is the most common perception with St. Nicholas is? Is there something there? Yeah, you really have to separate out the, I guess, legendary or traditional Santa Claus uh, from the, uh, you know, original historical Saint Nicholas. Um, there is a, a line between them. There's a connection between them, but they really are different characters in some sense. Um, just that, you know, it, uh, Saint Nicholas became an extremely popular saint in the Middle Ages. Um, certainly. Uh, for for a, a saint who is not in the Bible, so we're talking about extra biblical saints, he's probably one of the most popular saints uh, in certainly in in, uh, in the Middle Ages. Um, just hundreds of churches named after him. Um, lots of different little localities and towns that have Saint Nicholas traditions and Saint Nicholas legends, and then of course in the American context, which is very late. You know, we're talking about the eighteen hundreds. Uh, there's a whole Santa Claus tradition that that grows out of that. You know, there's this loose connection to the person of St. Nicholas. Um, but a lot of those, of course, are, are legendary and, and um, traditional and, and these sorts of things, family oriented. So, um, you know, the, the, the connection is very loose. Um, I think the connection is essentially that um, there was a, you know, a, a bishop or a pastor and that he did good works and he did acts of generosity, you know, and then from that, uh, people added on all kinds of, you know, legends and stories and, and things like that. But yeah, there is a loose connection. But, you know, for example, um, did he dress in a, you know, a, a, a red fur coat and, and red fur hat and things like that? You know, no, probably not. Um, you know, the, the dress of a of a bishop or a clergy member in the 300s probably would have been something really boring like black or brown or gray so let's begin with his early life because he, we do actually know when he was born in, in the 280s but he does become orphan really quick so let's talk about his parents death and what he does after he become orphan and a little bit about his upbringing sure so the earliest sources um tell us that nicholas was raised in a christian home and so learned, you know, the 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 gospel faith from early on, um, learned the Christian tradition from early on, but that uh, he lost his parents. We know of a, a plague that went through that area, and this is sort of on the southern coast of modern day Turkey. Uh, but we do know of a plague that went through that area around that time, and maybe he lost his parents in that way, uh, and that um, he had inherited some amount of money. And so, um, uh, you know, as a young man, he had a the sources report that he had a deep faith and that he was, um, you know, looking for, you know, ways to impact his world. And, and of course, that gives us one of the most famous stories about Nicholas and the one that probably connects him most directly to Santa Claus in modern day Santa traditions. Uh, and of course, that's the story of the three dowries or the three young maidens. Uh, and, you know, just very quickly, that story is is that. He um, learns of a family in town. This is on Patara, on the, the southern coast of Turkey, uh, the town of Patara. He learns of a, a family who has grown desperate, who have uh, lost everything. A father who is, and of course, you remember at this time, there were no credit cards or bank loans or things like that. So a man that goes into uh, debt and goes into extreme poverty and is considering selling his daughters off into uh, some sort of slavery or prostitution, uh, which is extreme to be sure. But uh, again, it's actually not something that is completely unknown. We have records of this sort of thing happening, uh, at, you know, at this time. And Nicholas decides to intervene, uh, but not wanting to be um, recognized or or known or or 
um, you know, called out for his act of generosity, he decides to act anonymously. And, you know, this is the story then of Nicholas coming by in the middle of the night to uh, drop off a, a bag of gold through the man's window. And the money is found in the morning. And as the story goes, um, you know, Nicholas is watching to see what they will do with, with the money. And as the story goes, uh, the money is used as a dowry so that one of the one of the daughters can marry out of her situation, out of poverty. And so Nicholas returns a second time with the second bag of gold and the second daughter marries off. And then uh, as the story goes on the third night, the third time that uh, Nicholas delivers a bag of gold, uh, the father is up and waiting. And when he hears the gold hit the floor, uh, he runs out and, and grabs young Nicholas and turns him around and demands to know who he is. And Nicholas says, you know, I'll tell you, but on the condition that you, you can't tell anybody about this um, and reveals himself to be Nicholas. Um, you know, there's a lot about this story that um, obviously then connects to the Santa Claus story of a nighttime uh, visitor, uh, someone delivering gifts in the middle of the night. Anonymously. But it was not through the chimney. But not through the chimney. Yeah, I mean, the, the early stories have it through an open window. And then kind of later versions of the story say that Nicholas arrived and the windows were locked. And so he dropped the, the money down the chimney and where it landed in a stocking that was hanging there by the fireplace drying. Uh, so you do have stockings and chimneys in later versions of the stories. Um, but, you know, again, that's, um, you know, what do you make of that story historically? Um you know, how, how much truth is in it? Uh, it's hard to say, although um, two things that work in its favor. Um, it's a it's a fairly unknown type of story. Um, it's it's not a typical saint story or, you know, it doesn't involve any kind of miracles. Um, it's not a, a retelling of some other story that might make you think this is completely legendary. It seems like kind of a new story. And um, it's plausible. Yeah, so there's a sense in which it's possible because it, it's it's not a miracle story, uh, and it's not just a rehash of an older story that everybody already knows. Uh, and we have um, kind of from early uh, murals and, and paintings on walls, uh, the, the, you know, reproductions of this story on chapels and, and monastery walls and things like that. So it was it was a story that was known very early about Nicholas. So let's talk about the next big thing that happens in Saint Nicholas' life, and that is Constantine decides to have the Council Council of Nicaea. And there is my understanding that we have to talk about, of course, the legend, the story that he supposedly punched another bishop in the face at the council. But there is also some debate. It's my understanding from listening to another podcast about Saint Nick that. There is was doubt was he there or was he not there at the Council of Nicaea. So, what is your take on this? And so let's talk a little bit about the Council of Nicaea. Sure. The, um, for your audience, uh, you know the Council of Nicaea uh, met in the year three twenty five, and uh, really is a watershed event in Christian history. Um, so, <clears throat> Constantine becomes uh, the, the emperor of of the entire Roman empire, you know, kind of a, 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 of the West and the East in 324, uh, defeating Licentius. And, you know, one of the first thing he does is calls a council of Christian leaders, Christian bishops together uh, to essentially, you know, they want to resolve a number of things, but essentially kind of resolve some of the, the questions and differences between uh, the various branches of Christianity at this point. Um, they meet in the town of Nicaea, which is just beneath um, what will be Constantinople. Um, Constantine is is reformulating the city of Byzantium to be the new Rome, uh, which will be Constantinople. They're building you know, capital buildings and palaces and things like that. And he takes up a temporary residence in the town of Nicaea. Um, and so he's, you know issues a letter for all bishops to attend. And uh, they work out a, a number of things. You know, one is uh, they work on the date of Easter. So some of it's just really practical stuff about trying to harmonize Christianity, trying to get uh, some sort of, um, you know, consistent practice within the Christian church. about the And date they of try Easter. to find out what Christianity should be, like what actually the yeah. religion should be. 
so some of it is is that they're trying to um, say in a definitive way uh, what something about the the person of Jesus. So what is the relationship of Jesus Christ to God, and in what sense? So everybody that I mean, this gets pretty technical, um, and you know, I do apologize for that, but but it's also important in the history of Christianity because everybody, you know, in the Christian world at that point certainly worshipped and acknowledged Jesus Christ as God's son, as divine. Um, but there was some confusion or ambiguity about how divine is Jesus. Um, is, is Jesus the son of God as divine as God the Father or divine in some lesser way? Um, so that's that's a really technical point, but the difference there is: is Christianity a monotheism? Is there just one God uh, expressed as God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, or is Christianity something like a a you know a tritheism or a a bitheism or something like that? Are there multiple gods? Is there God the Father, and then a little lower is there God the Son, and then? As different is there God the Spirit? So really, they're trying to figure out: is Christianity a monotheism with three expressions of God, or a tritheism? So that's a pretty big thing to, you know, to, mm. to to figure out. I mean, it's very technical, but it makes a huge difference if if Christianity has one God or two or three gods. So that's what they were trying to figure out. Now, most, you know, by and large, most people were on one side of this. We're on the kind of monotheistic side that. Uh, the Father and the Son are the same essence and substance, but there was a minority opinion that said, "No, I think that they are different." Um, and that's the the, um, the the camp of Arius, and there were a couple of bishops there who represented that camp. Um, now, as far as Saint Nicholas, is... I wanted to ask well to just yeah, give please. a little bit background. What explain what Arianism was for those who may not be familiar with the term, as you mentioned. So let's give a little upswell background on and what Arianism was. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, you know, yeah, that's that's a good point to to bring up. So, you know, again, there were kind of three positions. I was going to maybe maybe just say Nicholas uh, is is the reason we're talking about this is because we have evidence to suggest that Nicholas was at this council as a bishop of the time. His name is, appears in a number of lists of bishops who attended. So, this is why you know Nicholas comes into the story because he was at this really important council. And, but yeah, there and was... I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's also my understanding that there some of these lists were added later to so that, and that is something is where the debate comes in whether he was there or not. Because it's my understanding that some of these were added later after the council to maybe put him in the council of Nicaea to make it seem like he was there when he really wasn't. But so that is my yeah. understanding there is some debate there among scholars. There absolutely is. We'll get back to your question, um, in, mm -hmm. uh, your first question, in just a second. But yeah, just to to um, to tie into that that immediate point about was Nicholas there? Um, as I understand it, there are about sixteen lists of attendees that exist. Um, there was nobody there at the time taking notes or taking a role. So all of the lists come after, long after the council. Um, we we know for pretty much for a fact that there were about 300 bishops in attendance. So all of the lists that have at least 300 or more bishops in attendance, Nicholas is in those lists. But the lists that show, show a lot less than that, you know, maybe like 100, 150, Nicholas's name is not in those lists. So his name is in some lists, but not in others. So the, the lists that are very small Maybe you think these are maybe just the most important bishops who were there. So Nicholas was not among them. But in terms of the comprehensive lists, the lists that have 300 or more bishops, Nicholas's name is there. So there's certainly still debate about what, whether to trust those lists or not. But, uh, you know, again, I think if you if you start with the presumption that, yeah, there were more than 300 bishops in attendance, Nicholas's name is in that list. Um, then you have some evidence to suggest he was there in person. And he was a bishop at that time, so he would have been expected to go for sure. Sorry, I'm getting over a little bit of a cold here, so I'll take a look. No, no, no worries. You and me both. 
croaky sm- that sounding. That time of year again. It's that time of year. So just to get back to your earlier question about Arianism, uh, there were, it's, again, about three positions at the council. Most people were in the first position or the first camp, and that was represented by uh, Alexander and Athanasius of Alexandria. And this is what, what will become the orthodox position. Um, basically, the they answered the question, is the son, excuse me, is the son God in the same way that the father is God? And they answered, yes, they are the same substance, the same essence. So they use that Greek term, homoousios, same substance. And then there was the Arian camp, you know, represented by Arius and Arianism, which answered the question, is God is the Son God in the same way that the Father is God? They answered no. The Son is a different substance than the Father. You have God the Father, and then as a different substance, a different essence, God the Son, heterousios. Sorry. And then the third position uh, was a mediating position. Uh, uh, you have Eusebius of Nicomedia suggesting Maybe we can compromise here, find a middle position, homoousios. Maybe they are like substances or similar substances. Maybe the father and the son son are kind of like each other uh, in a similar sort of way. Like father, like son. Yeah. Can we split the difference here? And, uh, you know, as as you may know, of course, then the, the ultimate decision of the council was to reject the compromise position and to reject Arianism, ultimately siding with Alexander and Athanasius of Alexandria in homoousios. And so uh, they they produced the Nicene Creed, a creedal statement, um, which has a a long paragraph spelling out just what that means. So some famous language uh, uh, describing the Son as God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Um, so they wanted to say as clearly as possible that as as Christians, we worship one God, you know, and that the Son is equal to God, 100% God. They are not different substances. They are not different essences. So Arianism has come to be known just simply as that that belief that uh, that that in in Christianity you have kind of uh, two or three different uh, kind of beings within God, uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as different essences, and Orthodox Christianity simply says, you know, that's too close to tritheism, uh, and we can't go there. Almost paganism in a sense. Exactly, it's 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 too close to paganism. That's not what we believe. And so uh, that was shut down um, at the Council of Nicaea. But I think that Arianism is one of those. Well, yeah, Arianism is one of those things that uh, it was shut down, but it's it's still, you know, it's still with us. I think it's still as people just kind of naturally think about the Trinity, God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. People tend to explain it in their own minds in Arian ways. So Arianism, I think, is kind of a natural way to think about it. And it's not until you give it a lot of really hard thought that you end up rejecting Arianism and coming to, to something more orthodox. So anyways, that's all to say, yeah, it was dealt with at that time, but um, Arianism is something that never really went away. So let's talk about the, the story where did they say Nicholas punched? What 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 was yeah. the deal there? Not the punch, another bishop in at the Good. council. What what was the deal? Good, yeah. Let's circle back around to that. Thank you. Um, yes. So from what we can we we can surmise, Nicholas was in attendance, but there were no records of what who said what, and so it doesn't seem to be the case that Nicholas really had much of a role there. But Nicholas became such a popular saint uh, that people wanted to give him some role later, a legendary role. So it wasn't until the late 
1300s that you have a new story about Nicholas starting to emerge. <clears throat> and in the first version of the story, uh, Nicholas at the council hears, it's just called an Arian speaking heresy. And he's so zealous for his faith that he just, you know, he can't take it. And so he gets up and punches this Arian, slaps him. And then later versions of that story will change it from just an Arian to Arius himself. Um, and the, the problem is that because Nicholas has assaulted, physically assaulted someone in the presence of the emperor, Emperor Constantine, you know, this cannot be tolerated. And so the bishops, the other bishops present there, sanction Nicholas, essentially punish him by stripping him of his bishop's robes. Uh, they burn off his beard and they imprison him because of this act of violence that he's committed in front of the emperor. And as the story goes, Nicholas is languishing there in prison when uh, Mother Mary and mm. Jesus both come visit him in his prison. And to prove that, you know, Nicholas was right, they restore his beard and they restore his, uh, you know, his clothing. And in the morning when the bishops come and visit him and they see that his beard has been restored and his clothing are back on, you know, they understand that Nicholas was defending the truth, defending orthodoxy. And so they let him out. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, now, obviously, you know, that is is just a legendary story. Um, it came very late in the tradition. Uh, it is really no historical basis whatsoever. Um, in not fact, not even for Mary and Jesus showing up. Not even for Mary and Jesus showing up. No, I'm sorry to say. Um, but uh, it it does give rise to a couple of things. Uh, sometimes, in 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 uh, artwork, medieval artwork, mm. Nicholas is presented without his bishop's hat, without bishop's clothing. And that's kind of a reference to that story. So you see like a line of bishops, they all look like bishops except for Nicholas, who looks not like that. So it sometimes explains that. Um, you know, it, uh, I was, what I was going to say, uh, you know, it also gives rise to a number of great internet memes this time of year, uh, mm -hmm. internet pictures, uh, you know, people posting about St. Nicholas punching, you know, being uh, holly and jolly, delivering gifts and punching heretics and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So it's it's a lot of fun. Um, but there's another story um, kind of connected with that that will also sometimes show up in images. Uh, it's also said that when when Nicholas confronted Arius, uh, that he explained the Trinity to him by holding a brick, like a brick in his hand. And he said, you know, God is like this brick. There's one God and then, but made of three parts. You have um, the kind of the lime and the, and, and the mud that go into the brick. You have the water that goes into the brick. And then all that gets fired. It gets, it gets heated and, you know, baked into a, a single brick. So in this one brick, Think of God that way. You have the Father, Son, and Spirit. You have the, the the clay, the water, and the heat that form this one brick. And as Nicholas is explaining this, the brick bursts into flames, and you know water trickles out, and it, and it reduces down to dust and water and mud and flames. Ooh. So sometimes you'll see pictures of Nicholas holding a flaming brick, which is very strange. From a, you know, just a Santa Claus perspective, it does not make any sense. But you know, that's the, the origin of that picture. So you mentioned that you mentioned in the early on the story of the three girls, but and how it was not really this this legendary magical saint story that usually combined with saints, and but of course Saint Nicholas as well does have some of these saint stories, and this happened a little bit before they. Three hour after, and I'm not don't remember, but the three sisters, the three sisters were the two boys are lured in to this man's uh, house and he murders them. And Saint Nicholas 
problems across them, and then he revised them. So there are as well others among where he goes to see and commands the waves to you know kind of line the line down, and the waves do so. So let's talk about some other saint stories that are among these that are revolved because of course there are have to be. It's not a saint without these magical stories. So let's talk about some of these saint stories that surrounding Saint Nicholas. There are so many other saint stories about Saint Nicholas. You know, as I mentioned, he's one of the most popular, maybe the most popular saint, certainly in medieval Europe. And of course, to this day continues to be popular. He continues to be a patron saint of cities and countries and of people. Santa Claus. And Santa Claus, right. So yeah, just endless stories about Saint Nicholas. Um, you know, one of the most famous legendary stories is the one that you mentioned at the beginning uh, about Nicholas resurrecting uh, three boys um, back to life. And uh, that story um, does not really have a connection to the dowry story. That story seems to come from a different story altogether, historical story about St. Nicholas um, rescuing three military officers uh, from, you know, from prison. And there's kind of a long story about how that gets connected to it. But in the early Middle Ages, um, as people, you know, around the year 1000, 1100s, somewhere right in there, as you have different um, theater troops going from town to town producing theatrical dramas, uh, Nicholas stories were among the first non biblical. Christian based, you know, stories that they did. Of course, a lot of times they would go town to town and do, um, you know, maybe a Bible story, a theatrical production of a Bible story, or maybe just some kind of local other kind of story. But Nicholas stories became very popular to reproduce. And, and this was certainly one of them. Um, and the story is goes that uh, three uh, young boys and there are different versions of it. Um, sometimes they're you know, seminarians or, uh, you know, but three young boys basically uh, stop in at, a, at an inn, uh, a, a little motel, and um, need lodging for the night. And that the innkeeper comes in in the middle of the night and I guess robs the boys basically, but then also kills them and butchers them up and stuffs them into pickling barrels. And then shortly thereafter, Nicholas arrives and, um, you know, asks for a place to stay, asks for something to eat. And, you know, asks the, the innkeeper directly about maybe he could get some some pickled herring or some kind of pickled uh, meat. Uh, and, and at that point, forces the innkeeper to confess about these murders. And then Nicholas goes and resurrects the boys out of the barrels. In other versions of the story, you know, it's a butcher, which makes a little more sense, right? Why would an innkeeper butcher these boys? But maybe it was a, a meat butcher who cut up the boys. Almost a little Sweeney Todd story there. Yes. So it's a detective story. And, you know, that makes Nicholas a, a, you know, a detective. So, yes, a lot of pictures that people will see, you know, old timey pictures of Nicholas is him standing over barrels with you know three you know maybe naked boys coming out of the barrels and it's really strange like why, why are these children coming out of the barrels um he's bringing them back to life and um you know it's kind of a strange scene unless you know that backstory and then it's like oh okay that makes sense um but again that that one does not seem to have any sort of um direct connection to a historical event um it's connected to a different historical story about Nicholas rescuing uh, three military officers out of prison um, by appearing in a dream, but it doesn't have anything to do with them coming out of a, a pickling barrel or being resurrected to life. So let's talk about this death. And as you mentioned earlier on in Bari, how this archive for St. Nicholas there and that how his body supposedly laying there in not not in Turkey at the present. And to give a little bit background, you know, saints and uh, like such as Saint Nicholas because he was canonized quite 
pass <laughs> after his death. And saints were pretty much rock star or celebrities, movie stars of the medieval ages. Everyone what at the end of the day, everyone wants a memorabilia or a souvenir of something that a celebrity has worn, a shoe or whatever they didn't get the hands on, basically. Some people are like this. and But the, the people who took St. Nicholas' body, they took it to a whole other level where they took the entire body, supposedly, and took it back to St. To, to Bari in Italy. So they took, took this kind of memorabilia a little bit to the next level, to put it this way. So, But how did this come? How did they come up come across Saint Nicholas' body and bring it to Barry? Well, supposedly, and do you have any evidence that this is actually Saint Nicholas' body and and corpse that's supposedly lays there? Yeah, in the Middle Ages, um, saints' relics um, were a major business, uh, a major commodity, a major thing that people were interested in. Um, so every church, you know, every chapel had some kind of relic and, you know, people or were looking for relics. Cross. Yeah, that's right. So uh, the bones of St. Mark were taken from Alexandria to Venice and uh, bones were sometimes stolen or purchased. Um, and when they were moved, they were they were called translated as opposed to saying they were stolen or they were just moved. So they were translated from one place to another, but everybody was looking for some kind of special saint to have in their chapel or their church or their place. Um, and, and, you know, at this time, um, you know, Turkey where Myra, where Nicholas was buried, um, had been you know taken over by the Seljuk Turks and, uh, you know, Christians were losing, the ground there and you know for had been for a long time and so there was some feeling that the bones of saint nicholas were vulnerable that they might be destroyed by the muslims who took possession of the town or that they might just be lost forever and so a number of groups the venetians included uh, were planning to take the bones um, and and move them to safety or just you know relocate them um, sailors from Bari arrive first with the plan. And so they went into the, the church of St. Nicholas, where he was buried there in Myra, uh, Turkey, which is today Dimra, Turkey. And, you know, found the, the tomb of St. Nicholas, broke into it, and then scooped out the bones and, and brought them back to Bari. Um, short time after that, uh, some sailors from Venice arrived in in Myra and scooped out the remaining little fragments of bones. So there are some bone fragments also in in a church at Lido in outside of Venice. And then there the the most of them though are in Bari, Italy. Have they been done DNA tests on the body or such that to confirm that this is indigenous? So some some have on certain. Structure that have both been disproven and approved of this type of kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, proving with with total certainty that these are the bones of Nicholas uh, would be probably almost impossible. Um, you know, we have firsthand accounts of of the raid on Myra and the stealing of these bones, of the taking of these bones. So uh, we have people who were there at the time who talked about what happened. Uh, so, you know, we, we certainly believe the story that they stole bones from Myra, from this church. Now, to your question, how do we know that they stole the right bones? Um, you know, that's a good question. And I, I don't have a good answer for you. I don't, I don't know. Even if you did a DNA test, I don't know that what it would prove. Um, you know, that I mean, we don't have Nicholas's original DNA to match it against. Right. Um, so to this day, yes, the. Um, you know, if you talk to like the uh, Turkish uh, archaeologists, they will, you know, sometimes you'll have people who disagree and say, no, no, they um, about every new every year. If you just watch the news, there's some news story coming out of Turkey and the archaeologists say, oh, no, 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 they didn't steal the actual bones. We have there are different bones that have that have not been stolen and they're actually still here. And who knows? I mean, they're it's a, a lot of back and forth. Um, but we can trust that 
in uh, 1084 that sailors from Bari actually took actual bones from the church at Myra that they believed to be St. Nicholas and moved them back to Bari. Uh, and there's ongoing excavations of the church in Myra uh, of different tombs and things like that. But again, at this point, just about all of them have been broken into and raided and um, just, you know, compromised in a lot of ways. Did you see the bells yourself when you were in Bari in the archive? Um, so the bones are buried kind of in a in a sarcophagus, so they're not on display. Mm. So you can see the tomb of St. Nicholas, uh, but not the bones himself. Um, in the late 1960s, early 1960s, excuse me, uh, they, the, the sarcophagus was opened and pictures were taken of the bones and they did some surveys of them and, and um, measurements and things like that. Uh, but yeah, you can't see the, the physical bones for yourself just the just the tomb so let's talk about the trend on, on how because the czechs really do seem to love saint nicholas they have saint Holy, the holidays dedicated and parties to him so let's talk a little bit about the czech you know the rotation to saint nicholas because they really seem to love it's my understanding and do love to say to saints now you're referring to the 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 czech you said or the the Czech, yeah, the the Czech does seem to love the love the. According to Dr. Eleanor Yanagra, there is on her podcast interview there was seemed to be that they do do really love to have festivities in December and on December fifth. There is this really big holiday dedicated to and party dedicated to two Nicholas on this on the same day. So that they do seem to be quite devoted to Saint Nicholas. Yes. Um. You know, in, in especially in in Europe and in, in many different parts of Europe, there are many different uh, celebrations and festivals of Saint Nicholas to this day. Um, you know, among the Dutch and the Spanish and and certainly the Czech and um, you know the Swedish and so so you know it's just the, the British, uh, just about everybody, and the French have some kind of celebration. Um, most of them happen December fifth or sixth. So December 6th is St. Nicholas Day. Mm. And so a lot of times on the 5th, the day before, there's a really big St. Nicholas celebration, um, gift exchange, family meals, parades, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, each each different region or area has their own particular traditions. Um, now, a lot of the world has been influenced by the American Santa Claus, mm. uh, which is more about the December 24th and 25th. Uh, so a lot of times, you know, they integrate both the old tradition, St. Nicholas traditions and the new Santa Claus traditions. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, to this day, very popular. So let's talk about how the modern Santa Claus came to be how the, from St. Nicholas, and of course, Coca-Cola is kind of the obvious answer, but how, a little bit about, about the tradition before Coca-Cola came in, because it wasn't always that the red and white comes from Coca-Cola, but let's talk about how it came to America and how St. Nicholas became what we know as Santa Claus today. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, so uh, St. Nicholas' transformation to, to Santa Claus, it really happens in the early 1800s and it's a uh, uh, kind of the combination of two things um, commercialization and domestication if you will um, the person of Saint Nicholas is commercialized that is to say he's used in um, in commercials for department stores and advertisements uh, to sell merchandise because he's a gift giver and so at the holiday season, when you want to choose a gift, um, you know, having St. Nicholas help you choose that gift or, or endorse a gift is really helpful, um, but also a product of uh, domestication. So in the early 1800s, especially in the American tradition, but even in, in parts of Europe, uh, December is a time of, you know, of partying, celebrating, carousing, being out on the streets. Uh, 
much more like maybe New Year's Eve, uh, where there's just a lot of party and stuff like that. And especially in the city of New York, as they're looking for ways to try to um, limit some of the partying and, and some of the, um, I guess, the rowdier aspects of Christmas, um, they begin introducing Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, as a, a, a figure who appears in homes and transforming Christmas from a big outdoor celebration into a domestic celebration, something that happens inside the house. St. Nicholas coming to visit homes and and play with mm-hmm. children and deliver gifts to, to children and things like that. Uh, so you can have two forces happening at once. The the force of commercialization, um, you know, which, you know, again, creates this commercial Santa uh, who gets depicted as, you know, a jolly elf uh, with a smile and a friendly beard and, you know, his red suit. Uh, but also a domestic mm. character. He's 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 uh he's now somebody that is welcome in the home, and you know is is going to be trusted with children and, and things like that. Um, so that that's kind of the origins of that transformation from Saint Nicholas, uh, this kind of wild medieval figure, <laughs> into the modern Santa Claus, um, and of course to do that you you end up losing a lot of sort of the religious connections. So you think about the Santa Claus figure in the red cape and, and you know white fur trim and black belt. Um, you can see, if you really look hard at it, you can sort of see how that suit evolved from a bishop's robes and bishop's hat and bishop's uh, attire. But it's all been softened and it's it's lost its religious look to it. You know, there aren't crosses on it or anything that would connect it to, you know, a, a Christian priest or bishop, right? So how, how did he end up on the North Pole of all places? Yeah, that happened in the early, um, late 1800s, early 1900s. People at that time were just fascinated by the North Pole. There were expeditions to the South Pole and to the North Pole. And it, it was just a popular thing to 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 imagine and think about the northern lights and to think about you know life at the North Pole, life at the South Pole, and who on earth could live in such a a place, an inhospitable place? And so it, it kind of became like a magical place. And so why not put put you know Santa Claus there, Saint Nicholas there, because he he also has kind of this magical, mystical connection. Um, and, uh, so yeah, there, uh, he, yeah, he moves and, and he's dressed in this heavy red fur attire. So he has to live somewhere cold. Uh, so he, him living in Turkey no longer makes sense. Canada would have been quite cold as well. So that could have been really the place as handy. And there were a lot of expositions into Canada, so he, he could have, mm. he could live there. So yeah, I think it was just. Mm. There's nothing specific that says, aha, here's the logical reason mm. to put him at the North Pole. Um, but, you know, it just kind of uh, one of those things that sort of started to make sense in people's minds. Um, you know, in Finland, uh, there are other, as you may, may know, there, there are other yeah. kind of legends about the, the home of St. Nicholas being someplace in Finland. And so different people have different ideas. I mean, it's it's a mythical character, so you can put him anywhere you want. <laughs> Of course, maybe I'm going to run out now, but before we go, I've got to ask, do you have any favorite Santa Claus song and a Santa Claus movie that you watch every year or that you that's your personal favorite? Yeah, thank you for that um, that question. That, that's good. Um, I really enjoy the movie Elf uh, with mm. Will Ferrell. Um, it's just, a, I think it's just funny. And, um, you know, but and there's so many good movies and then and then holiday songs. You know, up on the house top, old Saint Nick uh, is a good, a fun song. Um, I don't oh, know. Here's for... a pretty good one by that. That's gonna be one of my favorites. By uh, I don't remember his um his, his name lost me right now. But Cool You is one of my favorites. Santa Claus is that going to the Santa Claus song? Yeah. What is your um favorite movie or is it? Oh, is it a fairly recent one? It's an animation. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but Klaus is a it's, it's a lovely little film. I, I really enjoyed that one. So that one is definitely a favorite. And I don't say that 
94 version. I haven't. I don't think I've seen the original of of uh, Miracle of the Third Street. It's really a great Santa Claus film as well. That's got to be one yes. of my top two at least. Oh, that's great. And is there a, for Norway, is there a particular song that you sing this time of year? There are a few, but I don't have them on the top, top of my head at the moment. But it's easy to look up if you if you just do the Norwegian Christmas songs. It should be fairly easy to look up. But there are, I don't really listen to much Norwegian Christmas songs. But uh, again, thank you so much for yes, coming thank you. on the podcast. Before you go, do you have any social media, any links you wanted to put in the description, or where can people buy your book? The sure. Um, book write, yeah. If you want to read about St. Nicholas and the real man behind Santa Claus, if they wish to read further. And of course, it's the perfect Christmas gift for this time of year, so why not give it out as a Christmas gift, if you are interested. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus, uh, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, dot com or or just anywhere you buy books uh, it's published by baylor university press so it could be easy to find uh, but yeah we just scratched the surface of it so there's much more hmm. and then thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been a great pleasure to talk with you this has been with that age well we are available on spotify youtube apple podcast wherever you can find podcasts if you are on apple podcast consider writing a review and give us five stars that would help us out a lot if you are on spotify consider giving us five stars there as well if you are on youtube like share and subscribe we have also recently joined threads on the red h12 we are on twitter slash x what that h12 instagram same and please like share and subscribe and i'll see you next time also before i go please remind Please check out some other Christmas specials we made. We made such as the Christmas Truce of 1914, The Origin of Christmas from Early On Until Modern Times, and Saturnalia, Christmas, and of course, most recent on St. Nicholas, which she heard today. My name is Alan, and I'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.